If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Cover in the sense of what an enormous crime heresy is, however heresy is defined, I think is quite important in trying to understand the levels of violence and coercion that we see in this century. That was Professor Peter Marshall talking about the Reformation. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of May 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. One of the biggest history anniversaries of 2017 is 500 years since the start of the Reformation, with the promulgation of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. In this week's episode, we're continuing our coverage of the anniversary by exploring what the Reformation meant for England. Professor Peter Marshall has written a new book on the English Reformation and is also the author of the cover feature of the latest edition of the magazine. He paid a visit to our studios here in Bristol recently, where he spoke to our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Perhaps to start really broad, what do we really need to know about the English Reformation? Well, um, (laughs) well, I think what we need to know about the English Reformation first and foremost, I suppose, is that it's a really important, decisive moment in in our history. I suppose people um, will understand that it's an argument about uh, theological issues, many of which today seem pretty obscure or irrelevant, even to, to practising Christians. But because it happens in a society where religion is so central to all aspects of life, that quarrel over religion actually ends up transforming English society and setting it on all kinds of new directions, politically, culturally, uh, and in all sorts of other ways. So recently, historians have tended to emphasise the idea of a long reformation that took place over many centuries, but you've decided to focus on one key century. What led you to that position? Um, Yes. And in fact, I was one of the historians who in the past has written about the idea of a a long reformation. Uh, And quite rightly, in some ways, I think historians... um, wanted to look at the Reformation not in terms of the sort of familiar drama of kings and queens, but to think about long-term processes of of transformation. And I think that's that's right and that's important. Um, But there was a danger there, I think, of losing the lived experience of what this was like for two or three generations in a period of extraordinary change. These were were lived experiences uh, where all sorts of extraordinary things happened in the course of people's lifetimes. Uh, And very important 
important decisions were taken, which could have led in all sorts of different directions. So the drama, really, of the English Reformation, I think, was something I wanted to to try and recover. So why was 1490 to 1590 such a key period? Yeah, the, the 1490, I suppose, is a bit of a kind of arbitrary date. Um, we would describe it as pre-Reformation, and that's a rather sort of dangerous term in a way because although historians often use that phrase pre-Reformation, it does rather imply a kind of land before history, a sort of timeless continuity before the real drama of the story starts. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to take quite a long run-up to the events of the 1530s, the better known events of the 1530s, when Henry VIII um, breaks openly with, with the Pope, was to recover a sense of dynamism and change and development in that earlier period. So there, there isn't really a, a static pre-Reformation time. Uh, there are attempts at Reformation before the 1530s. Some of them come in from uh, the leaders of the church themselves. The Catholic bishops are trying to uh, reform things. There are also attempts at reform uh, from the grassroots level as as well. Dissidents, um, many of them known by the name Lollards, uh, who disagree with the official teachings of the church, um, and whose significance has been rather marginalised, I think, in, in a lot of recent histories, but I think is important as a kind of pointer to the fact that there wasn't complete unanimity, complete agreement about these central questions of faith before the Reformation. As you highlight, um, the Reformation unleashed a huge deal of conflict and bloodshed. What exactly did this involve and how long did it last? Yeah, well, here again, I think um, the conventional view of the English Reformation, which is, of course, right in some ways, is that it's a relatively calm and peaceful process, particularly when one compares it with some of the experiences in other parts of Europe. There's nothing quite like the Peasants' War, which breaks out in Germany in the mid-1520s, for example, or the Wars of Religion, which uh, transfix France in the um, latter part of the, the 16th century. So there is this idea, which I think fits with uh, an idea that the English have always had about themselves as intrinsically moderate, sensible, avoiding the extremes, middle of the road. So the, the English Reformation is a kind of negotiated process. Uh, it's principally an act of state, um, which of course is not necessarily welcome, but uh, is is gradually accepted. And as I say, there is there is truth in that. But I think that just because England did not collapse into complete disorder and civil war shouldn't lull us into thinking that that was not a possibility. And there is, I think, just more um, contest, more bloodshed, more drama in the story of the English Reformation than we have sometimes realised or recognised. Um, I mean, in tracking the, the narrative itself, I mean, it occurred to me that there are actually literally battles in every decade between the 1530s and the 1570s in which blood is, is shed. Can you give us some examples of those? Absolutely. Well, um, one example, I suppose, is the, uh, the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536 and the continuing trouble in the north of England in the 1537, uh, which is a well-known episode um, and often, of course, described in terms of how uh, peaceful it was. The Pilgrimage of Grace is sometimes seen by historians as a kind of armed demonstration rather than uh, a rebellion in, in the more traditional sense. 
Um, but that ends with quite a serious encounter between rebel forces and government forces outside Carlisle in February 1537. Um, we don't know how many are killed in that encounter. There's a report that 800 are taken prisoner. One-sided battles in the late medieval period do tend to lead to, to lots of casualties. So there's the serious death there. Rather better known, but I think worth reiterating, is um, in the course of the rebellions which break out in the summer of 1549, um, in the southwest of England principally and in the Midlands, these are rebellions against the reforms to traditional Catholic religion which the government of Edward VI is carrying out. And those lead to real bloodshed on a pretty significant scale. There are, um, we don't know exactly how many, but perhaps 10,000 people are killed uh, in that year. And what impact did religious martyrs on both sides of the divide have? Did they help radicalise opposition or what role did they play? Martyrdom is really important in this story. And in a sense, we've always known that, but it, but it can never be stressed too much, I, I think. Uh, partly because martyrdom is recognised by everybody as a really important Christian ideal. It's at the very heart of Christianity itself, of course. The very story of Christianity starts with the martyrdom, that of Jesus himself and the, the crucifixion. And Christian martyrdom had always been based on that original story of someone giving their life for others, giving their life for, for the truth. So martyrdom is an idea with um, very much kind of hardwired into the psyche of English people in the 16th century. Uh, then as the religious debates of the 16th century start, and at first it's worth saying that isn't really a lot of bloodshed. And in the 1520s, when Luther's supporters are first making converts, first making progress in England, there was an idea among uh, the leaders of the Catholic Church, Cardinal Wolsey, Bishop John Fisher, people like that, that um, this could be settled peacefully, that these um, misguided individuals could be argued and persuaded back towards orthodoxy, back towards truth. And when eventually it realises that's not going to happen. Um, Thomas More, when he becomes Chancellor in 1530, I think is a little more hard-headed and realistic about this. Uh, and so the first Protestant martyrs are, are made uh, in the early 1530s. Um, and this, of course, very much galvanises the movement. I think a kind of moral Rubicon is crossed when blood is shed. Um, it's crossed both for those who are losing the blood and for those who are, who are, who are shedding it. Um, uh, and, of course, part of the irony of this is that only a few years later, the, the Catholics who had been the persecutors in 1530 have themselves become the victims of this. Thomas More, who presides over actually not quite so many burnings as he's often supposed. There are perhaps half a dozen Protestants burned during the period when Thomas More is Lord Chancellor. He is himself famously executed in 1535, along with Bishop John Fisher and some of the uh, the Carthusian monks, the most holy monks in England, who won't recognise Henry's break with Rome. What makes martyrdom a kind of long-running story, I think, is that although everybody recognises the principle and the importance of the idea of martyrdom, there is complete disagreement about who the martyrs are. And this is quite an important point, I think, for us as modern people to, to grasp because we would instinctively start with the assumption that anybody who dies honestly for their beliefs, conscientiously as they see it, we should perhaps consider uh, as a martyr. 
but that would have been an idea entirely alien to the people of the 16th century. There was a, a, a dictum which goes back to St. Augustine that a martyr is not somebody who dies for their beliefs. A martyr is somebody who dies for the truth. So who exactly the martyrs are depends on your perception of what the, the truth is. So a kind of contest about martyrdom is one of the themes which runs through the whole course of the Reformation. So in Mary's reign, which I suppose people will um, naturally think is that the bloodiest moment in terms of the making of martyrs, which in a, in a sense it is, uh, while the Catholic authorities are arresting and burning unrepentant Protestant heretics as they see it. They are, first of all, denying that these people are martyrs in any way, and at the same time promoting the memory and cult of people like Thomas More as the true martyrs. A generation later, in Elizabeth's reign, the coin has been flipped over, and the Catholic priests who are being trained abroad and coming back into England uh, to say mass secretly are being arrested and tried uh, for treason. And the authorities are insisting that these people are not religious martyrs, but uh, political subversives, traitors. Another reason why the story of these martyrs, I think, are important is that although the making of martyrs is in one sense... Um, an indication of a complete inequality, a complete asymmetry of power. So it's the authority of the state being brought to bear violently and physically on the bodies of dissenters. Protestants being burnt in Mary's reign, uh, Catholic priests being hanged under Elizabeth. Uh, but there was a kind of Pyrrhic victory here because this was a, a story that the, the state could never quite control. Uh, these violent deaths are symbolically really important. So heretics are burned, for example, a particularly gruesome form of execution because the burning of the heretic's body is a symbolic kind of pre-enactment of the suffering in hell, in the fires of hell, which the heretic soul will, will suffer in, in eternity. And also the physical destruction of the heretic's body is a symbolic representation that their body does not deserve to be resurrected, to rise again at the last judgment uh, and the second coming of, of Christ. The horrible punishment of hanging, drawing and quartering, the details of which I'm probably best not to go into, but which is the prescribed penalty for treason, is really based on on the idea in the old saying that uh, you know hanging is too good for them, uh, and because treason is the ultimate crime against the crown, it's the infliction of a series of multiple deaths, uh, one on top of the other. So there's a there's a script here which the authorities, the state, is trying to write, but which at every stage is subverted by the victims of this process. So in Mary's reign, uh, one finds the Protestant martyrs um, very consciously modelling themselves on Christ and Christ-like behaviour, um, forgiving their persecutors, putting on a simple white shirt to kind of evoke the simple clothing that Christ um, wore at his crucifixion. Um, in uh, Elizabeth's reign, Catholic priests would insist, for example, in being executed while wearing their mass vestments, so making the point that they were dying for religion and trying to subvert and undermine the official line that they were simply traitors and not really being persecuted for religious reasons uh, at all. The treatment of the bodies even could be subverted. Um, 
Uh, obviously, if a body is burned, there's no body to be buried. The traitors who are hanged, drawn, and quartered are also denied Christian burial. Uh, body parts might be stuck on spikes and put on bridges and gates as a kind of a terrible warning of the, uh, the the perils and dangers of defying the authority of the state. Or the other bits of the body might be thrown into to dung heaps. But um, this actually, ironically, simply made it easier for the supporters of these victims to collect relics. So we have accounts in Mary's reign of Protestant supporters of the victims gathering up the ashes. In Elizabeth's reign of Catholic admirers of the missionary priests going through the dunghills, retrieving bones, uh, stealing the severed heads from the city gates. So... Um, Despite this um, inequality of power in the contest over martyrdom, um, uh, there was never really going to be total victory. Leading on from that, can you tell us a bit more about the key motivations for religious persecution of heretics? This is something I think which is quite difficult for modern people to get their heads around, the idea of of heresy. Um, It's a term which, of course... Um, today sounds incredibly old-fashioned. Um, Christians tend not to use it at all. If they do, they end up sounding rather ridiculous. Uh, and in wider culture, heresy actually has rather positive connotations. You know, people always want to be thought of as a heretic rather than a conformist these days. So recovering the sense of what an enormous crime heresy is, however heresy is defined, I think is quite important in trying to understand the levels of violence and coercion that we see in this century and not just seeing them as a kind of mindless brutality. Heresy is a terrible crime. It's really the ultimate crime because it's a crime against God himself. This is a society um, which differs from ours in being absolutely non-relativist. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, There is only one truth. Truth is indivisible. So anybody who rejects the truth who willfully rejects it after having it explained to them and being given an opportunity to uh, get back onto the right path. Um, This person is a heretic. Um, The word uh, heresy actually comes from a Greek term meaning choice. Again, we think of choice as a good thing, but choice is not a good thing when it means choosing willfully to turn away from truth. Of course, because heresy is a crime against God, the ultimate sin, Uh, It must, of course, lead to the damnation of the soul of the heretic, the worst possible fate, an eternity of punishment in hell. That's bad enough. But what, of course, makes it worse is that heretics will try and convert others to their views, thereby damning their souls to hell as well. So the metaphor, which is sometimes used in the period itself of heresy as a kind of terrible epidemic disease, I think is quite a, a helpful one. And indeed, an epidemic disease which people are spreading deliberately, which I think helps us to understand a bit the ferocity with which it is treated. Of course, it's quite possible to be rather cynical about all this and say that a lot of this was not really being done with these very uh, high motives about the purity of religious truth and that this is the suppression of dissent for uh, political reasons primarily. Um, I wouldn't entirely dispute that, uh, though I think that very clear division 
between religion and politics and religious motives and political motives, which seems very uh, clear to us today, is not terribly helpful in looking at the 16th century. How can you possibly pick apart religion and politics in a society where people believe every aspect of life has been planned and ordered by God, uh, where it's believed that monarchs who are anointed with sacred oils at their coronation in a kind of religious ceremony are God's deputies. Um, Every aspect of life is underpinned um, by uh, belief in God's providential care for the world. So deciding what is religious and what is political uh, is rather hard, I think. Uh, and when the state is decreeing a particular religious uniformity, which everybody should follow, then refusing to uh, accept that decree and choosing your own brand of religious truth is by definition political subversion against the state. This, it seems to me, is kind of the real interest of the, the English Reformation, why it's such a moment of instability and crisis, because you have in a society which still fundamentally believes in absolute uniformity, in one indivisible truth, in a conformity, um, which again, conformity we see as a rather negative thing, but let's remember, of course, conformity can mean harmony, coherence, a society in which everybody can work together for the common good. So th those ideals are still very deeply grounded. And yet at the same time, large numbers of people have become convinced of the truth of fundamentally divergent and indeed incompatible versions of what Christian truth ought to be. So what role did each of the different Tudor monarchs play in religious persecution? Yes, well, the, the Tudor monarchs are an interestingly mixed bunch, of course, as everybody knows. Um, Henry VIII, uh, larger-than-life figure in every sense, um, and then his three children, uh, who are all, of course, incredibly interesting and contrasting figures. His son, Edward, who doesn't um, reign uh, beyond his 15th year, uh, and then his two daughters, Mary I and Elizabeth I in succession. Um, all, of course, uh, who have rather different conceptions of religious truth. Um, perhaps it's clearest in the case of Mary, who for a mixture of uh, familial uh, and uh, convinced um, personal reasons, uh, I think we can call a Roman Catholic in the sense that uh, she believes that the English church is part of the wider communion of a Catholic church in, um, in unity under the authority of the Pope in Rome. Uh, Edward VI, who becomes convinced by the, um, some of the more zealous Protestants who are making progress in um, his father's reign uh, and uh, who uh, supports the attempt to... Um, uh, lead to England becoming a very different kind of reformed Protestant society. Uh, Elizabeth's something of an enigma in what her true religious beliefs were. Uh, the question of whether Elizabeth I was really a Protestant um, could detain us for quite a long <laughs> period of time, I think, if we went down that route. Um, how exactly we should classify the religious beliefs of Henry VIII as well is equally difficult to uh, to say and, and very intriguing. Um, he's sometimes described as a Catholic without the Pope or as introducing Catholicism without the Pope. I think that's not terribly helpful and far too simplistic a view um, of a very complex set of attitudes and beliefs that, that he has. Um, 
But one thing I think that all of them hold to is the idea that there must be uniformity in religion. That is a running theme of acts of parliament, of proclamations, of pronouncements, that everybody must pull together uh, and um, profess one united Christian faith at a time when that is coming apart at the, at the seams. Um, and all of them are prepared to use coercive means to bring that about. Um, it's perhaps best known in the case of, of Mary, uh, who in time becomes nicknamed Bloody Mary, um, and rather oddly is always referred to in uh, English history as Mary Tudor rather than Mary I, which I think is a little curious, but seems almost to come out of an idea that she's delegitimated in some way. She's not really a proper monarch because of her attempt to um, pull the country off its preordained course of history into its Protestant future and to use such violent means to, to do so. That moment between 1555 and 1558, when Mary's authorities preside over quite an intense persecution of Protestants, where just under 300 are, are burned, is a particular moment of violent coercion. But there are literally hundreds of people executed in Henry's reign, both for Protestant heresy and for the kind of political heresy of continuing to uphold the authority of the Pope. Um, there's an extraordinary moment in July 1540, when on the same day, Henry has three papalists, three supporters of the Pope, hung, drawn and quartered at Smithfield, and three Protestants who deny belief in the presence, the real presence of Christ in the bread and wine of the Mass, burned for heresy. So in a sense, it's a kind of symbolic representation of Henry's even-handedness, his middle way between extremes. But it would be rather strange in modern terms, I think, to call this moderation. It's a kind of moderation through violence and, and coercion. In Elizabeth's reign, um, maybe around 200 Catholics judicially executed not for religious reasons, the regime always insists, but for the secular crime of treason. That's an insistence that the Elizabethan authorities think of as really important, perhaps because they recognize that the more obviously religious persecution of Mary's reign has perhaps played rather badly in, in some communities. But of course, this seems a rather bogus distinction to the victims. And when it actually becomes a crime under law to be an ordained Catholic priest uh, coming into the country from abroad and celebrating mass, then the distinction between what is religious and what is political has broken down. So what impact did all of this have at a grassroots level? Can we see um, its impact on ordinary communities and everyday life? We don't know as much about that as we'd like to, of course, because the surviving records are overwhelmingly the records of Crown and Parliament and state and central government. And we have almost snatches of insight into local communities through sets of church wardens' accounts, the occasional parish register or a little local chronicle. And in a lot of places, it is probably true to say that, you know, life went on. People got on with it, um, even as the world changed around them. The, the theme of conformity has been an important one in, in the scholarship, that people basically did what they were told, whether they liked it or not. And that was true even of the, the clergy, the religious professionals. There are lots of examples we can find of uh, priests who served successively through the reigns of Henry, Edward, Mary and Elizabeth and reinvented themselves more than once as Catholic priests or Protestant ministers. 
And yet, having said that, there were some communities who were rather devastated by this. I mean, think of villages in Devon in the aftermath of the 1549 rebellion or another Catholic rebellion in Elizabeth's reign in 1569. Uh, um, centred principally in County Durham and North Yorkshire, where there's terrible reprisals and government commissioners go through villages um, literally picking out the names of 10 or 20% of the participants in the rising and at least 600 men are hanged uh, in a few months at the start of, of 1570. So there must have been some communities that were devastated in that kind of way. Also, I think it's worth saying that the, the trauma of Reformation in local communities wasn't just about bloodshedding. It was about the loss of really valuable and familiar symbols of community, religious symbols. Um, one of the case studies I talk a bit about in the book is the little Shropshire borough of Much Wenlock, uh, which we know about a little bit because the parish register there is kept by the vicar, Thomas Butler, who's one of these conformist clergymen who serves all the way through into Elizabeth's reign. But in keeping the parish register, he doesn't confine himself to noting the baptisms and, and burials. Uh, he writes comments. He writes a little chronicle of the events that are happening uh, around him. Uh, and probably the key event in that period is the closure of the priory in Much Wenlock. Um, the, the monks there are, are Cluniacs, a type of Benedictine monk. And it's not a particularly important monastery, but it's, uh, it really dominates the town. It's the finest building. It's going to be a significant employer. Um, uh, Butler himself is clearly traumatised by the closure of this, this monastery, by the fact that he records over years the fate of former monks and what had happened to them. And I think here, if we were looking for a contemporary analogy, it would be something like the, the closing of a steelworks in a northern town or um, the shutting down of the only NHS hospital in a particular locality, really something which has a big impact. Um, to make this worse, I think, in this one place of much Wenlock, the, the priory was dedicated to St Milberger. I suspect people listening to this probably haven't heard of St Milberger. I certainly hadn't before I came across this, this source. Not a famous saint, very local. An Anglo-Saxon princess who was very pious apparently and becomes the focus of a cult in the Welsh uh, borders. So the monastery there is dedicated to her. And in the parish church where this guy Butler is vicar, there is a little shrine. At the start of Edward's reign, the bones of St. Melburga are removed, publicly burned in the town square along with images out of the church. We don't really have a record of exactly how people felt about that. Um, in Butler's little chronicle at that moment, he switches from English into Latin, and I almost feel he couldn't bear <laughs> to describe what he felt about uh, these events uh, in, in the language he normally used. Um, so that's one little case, but that experience of losing familiar images and statues, paintings from the parish church is replicated right across England in this period. But were there any benefits to local communities from the Reformation? That's an interesting question. And obviously, for people who believe that the Reformation is getting rid of superstition, hypocrisy, um, a wrong form of Christianity and replacing it with one much more purely based on the gospel of Christ, then the benefits there are, are obvious. It's, it's building a, a new society. Um, Economic benefits, I think, are harder to point to. There clearly is, in this period, a loss of what had been communal resources of various kinds. Um, perhaps one could argue that 
the banning of practices like um, the saying of masses for the souls of the dead in purgatory freed up some resources for people to use, which might otherwise have gone into the hands of the church and, and, and been tied up uh, in, in that way. Part of the triumph of Protestantism, of course, is um, the growing importance of the English Bible. Uh, and while statues and images are being removed from churches, um, the sort of symmetrically opposite order is for Bibles to be acquired and kept in churches and for English people to have access to them. And irrespective of whether or not one thinks that represents a purer form of Christian faith, um, it is probably the case that the increasing presence of the English Bible and printed editions of the Bible, of which there are very many over the course of the 16th century, is a factor which encourages literacy. One wouldn't want to overstress that. You know, throughout this whole period and the whole of the 17th century, the majority of English people remain illiterate. But it does seem that there is something of a correlation between higher levels of literacy and parts of Europe which adopt the Reformation, where the, the, the reading of the Bible becomes a more important devotional act. Looking down the centuries, where can we see the legacy of the Reformation and any associated conflict or violence? And can we still see it today? When does the Reformation end uh, is a really hard question to answer. Nobody sort of declares a, a view on that. And of course, in the, you know, the great sort of sweeping river of history, it's always rather artificial to, to declare that particular moments end. Um, I, I suppose I would come at this question by saying that what the Reformation does is that for the first time, it introduces a, a principle of division, or perhaps it's better to say pluralism, into English society, which cannot simply be swept under the carpet um, or repressed into to non-existence. So the Reformation is the moment at which English society has to come to terms with the fact that there is going to be division of opinion, there is going to be plurality. Um, and this is a very hard thing for society to come to terms with, and arguably we've still not, even in the supposedly tolerant 21st century, still come to terms with it today. Um, of course, I suppose in some ways the Reformation uh, is a vote for one form of Christianity over another. So England, which had been uh, a very pious Catholic country, becomes over time um, a broadly Protestant one. Precisely when that is complete is very hard to say. The, the actual final political triumph of the Reformation, where it ceases to be a possibility of any kind, that this could be reversed and Catholicism restored, um, you could make an argument that this happens um, in the north of Scotland on the field of Culloden Moor in 1746 with the final defeats of the Jacobite Rebellion. That would make a very long Reformation over, over several centuries. Um, I decided, um, with what was already quite a long book, um, to close the story in around about 1590. Uh, I did that partly because that had given me about 100 years, about three generations to track through an experience of lived and inherited change, but also because it seemed to me by about 1590, certain um, parts of future development had been set. The, um, the attempt through force and invasion culminating in the Spanish Armada of 1588 to uh, completely reverse the Reformation seems to have missed its chance. Uh, the drive among the more uh, zealous, the, the godly Protestants, who were nicknamed at the time Puritans, 
who in the course of the 1580s had had a big push to make the English Reformation go further and to purify the worship uh, of the church further as they saw it, that had been rather stalled and, and defeated. Um, and for the moment, at least, the vision a bit more in coincidence with Elizabeth I's own view of Protestant but not too Protestant appeared to have triumphed. So it was a useful moment to pause, but um, perhaps an argument against saying that the story finishes there and that it was all rather sort of peaceful and stabilised is that we mustn't forget what happens in the following century. Um, In the 1640s, not just England but the whole of the British Isles are convulsed by years of civil war. And although these are not usually thought of as England's wars of religion, the exact equivalent of what happens in France in the 16th century, there is a strong argument that can be made that it's unfinished business from Elizabeth's reign from the 16th century, uh, conflicting views about what kind of Protestant reformation England should have that are really important factors driving those divisions in the civil war. Do you think, looking back, we can see the Reformation as successful? I'm pausing before answering that question, not because it isn't an important and and good question. It's a very significant one, and of course it was asked at the time. And in a sense, that's probably the main question that historians have asked about the Reformation. And the traditional view is that it was tremendously successful. It got rid of a a false, corrupt form of, of... Christianity and replaced it with a better one. Uh, In more recent times, uh, so-called revisionist historians have made a very powerful case that it wasn't particularly successful. It was resisted and most people perhaps didn't really become proper Protestants. Um, I'm not actually sure that trying to sort of see this as a kind of zero-sum game of success and failure is particularly helpful, partly because one of the things that the Reformation itself um, produces is a whole series of very um, divided and conflicting views about what success should mean. Um, so Elizabeth I's um, principle of, of successful reformation, uniformity, obedience uh, uh, under her laws, will be very different from that, not only of Catholics of all different uh, shapes and hues, but also of the very zealous Puritan reformers. So within the period itself, there are a whole series of conflicting definitions of what would count as success and what should count as failure. And it's probably more important to study and recognise those than to try and decide who was, who was right. Actually, perhaps it's not so much the end product, but the process itself, which is really important and which is really significant and kind of is the success. Even though no one group really got what it wanted, everybody was left rather dissatisfied, the country was left divided. But over the the course of that story, what had happened is that all sorts of people had had a chance to think about really significant and crucial things, to have their say about them, whether that was through very dramatic forms of expression such as rebellion or just contact with new ideas. So in some ways, I think this um, divisive, violent um, process, which you know perhaps in some ways seems rather negative, is kind of liberating and emancipatory. Uh, things which we do value today, pluralism, um, and eventually, very eventually, toleration of difference, do I think have their roots in the Reformation. The Reformations across Europe 
are often seen as thing seen as things which reinforce the authority of the state and of the crown. So in countries like France, the 17th century is famous as the great age of absolutism, where the ideological authority of religion is allied to that of the state. That I don't think happens in England. It's it's one of the great ironies of the English Reformation, I think, that Although its central idea, if it had a central idea, was Henry VIII's notion of a royal supremacy over the church, that the monarch was not just the civil secular head of the country, but its spiritual head as as well. So there's this very high ideological claim to complete authority. And yet, over the course of the 16th century, the religious divisions, the alternative choices, I think serve to undermine the crown's ability to command unquestioned obedience. Uh, so it's it's a moment which um, paradoxically liberates even as it divides the English people. That was Professor Peter Marshall of the University of Warwick. His book, entitled Heretics and Believers, A History of the English Reformation, is available now in the UK, published by Yale University Press. And in the US, it's due to be released next month by the same publisher. And you can read an article by Peter in the May 2017 issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, we have pieces on King Arthur, the attack on Guernica, Victoria's eating habits, and England's first queen, among other things. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, where you can save 35% on the shop price. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP216. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And now it's time for this week's history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. A large World War II bomb found in Aston, Birmingham, has been safely detonated. Many homes and businesses were evacuated and a number of rail services were suspended following the discovery of the device. Mike Dudicki, Deputy Commander of the Army's UK Bomb Disposal Unit, who coordinated the operation, said the team was, quote, very confident it was a classic Second World War German airdrop bomb. Thirteen lorry loads of sand were brought in to create, quote, a sizeable igloo around the 250 kilogram bomb. Professor Carl Chin, a University of Birmingham historian, explained to the BBC, quote, Birmingham was a major munitions centre, as were Manchester and Coventry, and on the 19th of November 1940, the Germans attacked the city very heavily. The raid carried on for nine hours on 19th of November, but it could have been the next night when this device was dropped. 
In other news, a metal detectorist who discovered the, quote, richest collection of rare Viking artefacts ever found in the UK is set to receive a reward of almost £2 million. Derek McLennan, a retired businessman, gained permission to search the area in Dumfries and Galloway, where he uncovered a 10th century hoard which he passed on to experts. The find of more than 100 objects included solid gold jewellery, silver ingots, an enamelled Christian cross and a bird-shaped gold pin. The body that rules on ownerless goods and property, the Queen's and Lord Treasurer's Remembrancer, has ruled the items should be allocated to National Museum Scotland for display, provided it pays £1.9 million to MacLennan, reflecting the market value of the find. National Museum Scotland has six months to raise the funds and has said that while other finds around Britain or Ireland have been exceptional for a single type of item, the Galloway Hoard was unique in bringing together a variety of objects, hinting at previously unknown connections between people across Europe in the 10th century. Meanwhile, an Egyptian archaeological mission has found a necropolis holding at least 17 mummies near the Nile Valley city of Minya. Professor Salah Al-Khouli of Cairo University told the BBC that as many as 32 mummies may be in the chamber. The archaeological site on the edge of the western desert in the village of Tunar al-Gabal hosts a large necropolis for thousands of mummified animals, the latest discovery of elaborately preserved mummies, which is believed to date back to the late period of ancient Greece and the Greco-Roman period, is the first human necropolis to be found in the area. OK, well, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for our History Weekend events are currently on sale. This year's events take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. Speakers include the likes of Roy Hattersley, Michael Wood, Tracy Borman, Alison Weir and Dan Jones. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be joined by Ian Mortimer to discuss the restoration of Charles II. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.